I'm excited this morning because I get to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. Now, Acts is New Testament. We know. I'm not confused about that. But as we have just heard, this is an Old Testament text. It's a long text, so we need to jump right in. Verse 8, and Stephen full of grace, that's chapter 6, verse 8, and Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Luke writes Stephen in with such pomp and prestige, a man full of grace, power, a wonder worker, a man for the people. He really presents Stephen in prophetic light. He's presenting Stephen as the prophets of old. And what happened to the prophets in Israel's day? It's safe to say it wasn't a very safe occupation. They were heavily persecuted and even put to death by their own people. Affliction. And guess what happens to Stephen here, verse 9, and some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed. They disputed. Here, these freedmen, that's a loan word from the Latin libertinus. These were Hellenistic Jews who'd been emancipated from Roman slavery. So really, they're, they're foreigners, Hellenistic Jews. But the point here is this. Just as the locals were persecuting the church, so now the foreigners. And the point is this. The gospel's going out to the ends of the world. And as the gospel goes out to the ends of the world, persecution will follow. And we learn here that we have to be defenders of the faith. As Stephen, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was speaking by the spirit, which is another way of saying he was speaking by God's word. He was arguing with Jews. He was arguing against Judaism with the Old Testament. He was showing that Christianity is Old Testament religion. Now, the Jews were claiming that the Christians had changed things. We read in verse 13, and they set up false witnesses, these Jews, these false witnesses. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and this law. So these Christians are against the Old Testament. For we have heard him say that this Jesus will destroy this place and will change. He's going to change the Old Testament. He's going to change our customs the customs. He's going to change what Moses delivered to us. Now, it is true that Christians teach that things have changed. Things have changed from the Old Testament, right? We believe that, but we don't believe that things have changed. We do believe in change, but not because things have changed. But because things have been fulfilled. Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to abolish. I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of the law. I have come to what? Fulfill the law. Christ has come to fulfill the law. He didn't change anything. 
He finished it. He didn't change Moses. He finished Moses. Now, as Stephen is getting attacked here for changing things, the Reformed theology, our Reformed faith, has been attacked here on the same grounds. You might have heard that Reformed theology from uh, the attackers, or from our instigators, saying that Reformed theology is really replacement theology. Have you ever heard of this term, replacement theology? Oh, you believe in replacement theology. We don't believe in replacing anything. Christ has not replaced anything or anything or anyone. Nothing has changed. But everything has been fulfilled. Reformed theology, biblical theology, is fulfillment theology. So if anybody ever tells you you believe in replacement theology, you say, no, you don't understand. It's fulfillment theology. Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, thereby done away with types and shadows. So it is true. Our theology doesn't care about geopolitical Israel. We could care less theologically about the nation of Israel. Why? Because we are the Israel of God. We don't care about building, rebuilding a temple. We could care less about a temple on earth. Why? Jesus is God with us. We don't care about an earthly throne of David. Why? Jesus is king of kings. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. We don't need Judaism. Because Christianity is an Old Testament religion. That's what Stephen's arguing for in this text. We don't need Judaism. Christianity is an Old Testament religion. That's the title of my sermon this morning. If you're taking notes, the main idea, Christianity is an Old Testament religion. I have three points to back that up. Christianity is an Old Testament religion. Christianity begins with election. And guess what the Old Testament begins with? Election. Christianity, point two, is inherently spiritual. And so is the Old Testament. And finally, Christianity centers on Christ just like the Old Testament. So first point, Christianity is an Old Testament religion that begins with election. And we see this point in chapter 7, beginning verse 2. This is Peter's defense. He begins this long sermon. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So Stephen's being accused of replacing Judaism with Christianity. And he argues that Christianity is the truth of the Old Testament. And to prove this defense, he begins with Abraham. Our father Abraham. When, this is important, when he was in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, go out from your land and your kindred and go to the land which I will show you. Why does he begin with Abraham? Now listen, is he beginning with Abraham because Abraham is Jewish? Where's Abraham from? Anyone know where Mesopotamia is? It's very interesting. He's a Babylonian. Do you know anything about Babylonians in the Bible? 
They're the bad guys. He's a bad guy. From Babylonian. Is he Jewish? Not necessarily. Not yet. He's Babylonian. Did God call him because he was like a good person? Like because of his works of the law? No, it's before. That word before is very important. Before Moses, before there was any law, before there was circumcision, before there was any, any prescription whatsoever, before a, before a single commandment, before any law, God chose a sinner, a Babylonian. Had nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with faithfulness, has nothing to do with works whatsoever. Before all works, chosen before he lived in Haran, before he was promised to be a great people, to have a wonderful place, God simply chose him and called him. That is, election. Election made Abraham the father of faith. What does election mean? Election means that God chose Abraham by grace. It is by grace. Before there was a temple, before there was necessity of, command, or necessity of obedience or the commandment to obey, God simply elects Abraham. God simply elects this Babylonian to be his chosen offspring. And then Stephen shows that Abraham never really even took possession of the promise, verse 5. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it. He didn't even get it. Not even a foot's length. He didn't even get a foot. He didn't, get, he didn't even get his foot in the door of the promised land. We all know the story. He got a plot for burial. That's all he ever got. He got to bury his wife in the promised land. But God promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. That's important. That means God is going to give him this, not because of the works of his hands. It won't come by money. It won't come by any ability in himself. God's going to give him this land. There's also another important truth here. He lived by sight. He never got to see it. He never got to actually possess the inheritance but he lived from afar, as Hebrew tells us. And he longed for a better country. He knew he would get it. And he longed from afar by faith. That's Christianity. Where we live by faith and not sight. Where we're promised a kingdom of glory. We're, we're promised heaven, a better country, a city whose designer and builder is God. But it's from afar and we see it from afar by faith. And from afar we take possession of it. But by faith, not by sight, not by hands, not externally. And we trust that God will fulfill the promise. And we know that he will fulfill, not because we're faithful. We're faithless. We're all Babylonians in a sense. But God is faithful. He will preserve. We just trust. We trust we wait patiently for heaven in this life. We live by faith and not by sight. Just like Christianity, the Old Testament saints longed and waited by faith. And just like Christianity, the Old Testament saints suffered affliction. Verse 6, 
And God spoke to this fact that his offspring would be sojourners in a land. Sojourners, by the way, that's what we are, right? The Bible calls us sojourners. Sojourners in a land belonging to others who enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. That word affliction is very important in this sermon by Stephen. He uses it several times. He uses it here speaking of uh, affliction by unbelievers. Later on, he will speak of affliction, affliction happening by the house of believers. So God's, uh, the enemy of God's people afflict and God's people afflict God's people. They do what they do best. The world, it kicks against the church. Verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. This is the history of Israel right here. He's beginning to show the history of Israel. Not only did the Egyptians afflict the church, but he's trying to show these fathers, these ancient Jews, that you have been, our fathers have been the trouble of the church. Our fathers are the ones who trouble the church. Even the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God is with him. And God rescued him out of his affliction. Egypt persecuted God's people. God's people persecuted God's people. This is the beginning of Israel's history. It is a history of God's people killing God's people. This history gets repeated in the Middle Ages too, by the way. It's also a history of God's sovereignty protecting God's people. We see that God was with Joseph. And God raised him up. Though he was persecuted, we know the story. God answered and raised him up, second only to Pharaoh. And through Joseph, by God calling Joseph and God preserving Joseph, God answered his promise. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased, increased and multiplied. Here we see that Israel failed God, but God succeeds. Israel persecutes, tries its own people, tries even the promise, attacks the promise, against the promise, but God continues to succeed. When we are faithless, God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is Christianity in the Old Testament. Who here can confess success? Who here can say, yes, I'm successful. I've done it. We are faithless. He is faithful. But the Bible promises that we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors, but our success is in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We fail, but God succeeds. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. We fail, God succeeds. We're losers, God's winner. We're sinners, he's savior. Are you a failure? Then you're good enough for Christianity. Look to Christ. Now Stephen then rehearsed the origin of circumcision, verse 8. He says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became, became the father of Isaac and the circumcised him on the eighth day and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. God gave, look at the text, God gave Abraham a covenant and it was a covenant of circumcision. 
Now, what Stephen really wants us to answer here, the question Stephen wants us to answer is this. When did God circumcise Abraham? Was it before or after election? It's after. So that the covenant might stand on grace. That is, that it might stand on election. That it might be bound to God who keeps circumcision. That it is God who calls and God who blesses. Here's another question Stephen would want us to answer. Was he circumcised before or after faith? After he believes, he believed God, Genesis 15, and God counted that as righteous. God imputed him for righteousness. God made him righteous by faith. He, he took possession of the righteousness by faith. And then in chapter 17 of Genesis, God circumcised faith precedes. This means it's not a work. This means circumcision is not a work, but a sign of the faith that he took possession of the righteousness he had. Before he was circumcised, Paul makes the same argument in Romans 4. He wasn't circumcised because he was Jewish. That's the real point Stephen's making. He wasn't circumcised because he was Jews. He wasn't circumcised because he was a good Jew. He believed, he had faith, and that was counted to him as righteousness. This is Christianity in the Old Testament. We're right before God only by faith. Even though our conscience accuses us of having grievously sinned against God's commandments, and though we have never kept any commandment whatsoever, and even though we're still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, not because we deserve it at all, but by sheer grace, God grants and imputes to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if we've never sinned nor been a sinner, but as if, in fact, we have been perfectly obedient. As Christ is obedient for us. And we accept this gift. We accept this salvation by faith. And faith alone. Here's another question. Does circumcision belong to Abraham or Moses? Who was the sign, the covenant given to? Is it a covenant for Moses or a covenant to Abraham? It has nothing to do with Moses. It has everything to do with Abraham. What was the Mosaic covenant? Anybody know what the sign of the Mosaic covenant was? Sabbath keeping. Which if you know your Bible, kind of sounds like the covenant Adam had to obey and fulfill. It is. It's called a recapitulation. But Abraham's sign is this bloody sign. This means that circumcision precedes the law. Circumcision is not Moses. It's Abraham. It comes before the law. Why? Because it's gospel. Circumcision's gospel. Now, how can the cross, which precedes circumcision, affect this covenant? How can the gospel of Jesus Christ, how can the cross affect circumcision years and years before? Election. Circumcision was a covenant, which means it was a sign and seal that we belong to God. And how does anyone belong to God? Jesus Christ, right? Only through Christ. Christ. 
And Abraham could rest assured that God would bless him, that God would bless his children, because Jesus loves little children. Election made circumcision possible. And it's election that makes that baptism possible. It's election that made salvation possible before the cross. It's election that makes salvation possible after the cross. This isn't, shouldn't be a problem for us. Election means that Christ died for Abraham. It means, election means that Abraham was a Christian years before Christ. I wonder if Jesus ever said that he knew Abraham. Did Abraham ever know Jesus? When Jesus says that, I knew Abraham. What did the Pharisees say? You're not even 40 years old. How'd you know Abraham? Oh, I knew him. And he knew me because he was a Christian. <laughs> That's our first point. Election makes Christianity, makes Old Testament Christian religion. Second point, Christianity is an Old Testament religion because it's spiritual. It's all spiritual. Now, God preserved Moses. We see that in verses 20 through 22. Moses comes on the scene in the sermon, verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, that is, he was supposed to be put to death. They were killing all the babies at the time. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptian, and he was mighty in the word, his mighty in words and deed. Moses was as good as dead because Egypt was killing the children born at that time. Yet God preserved him and called him to redeem God's people. Now follow me. God, called, God sovereignly preserves Abraham. God sovereignly calls him. Now how do the people respond? How do the Jews respond? Verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. That's Israel's history. They failed to understand the things of God. So Moses, eventually, they eventually offer him nothing but trouble. Are you going to murder us, they said. So he had, to, he had to flee. He had to flee and go into exile himself. They would not listen to him. But while he's in exile, God is gracious to him. And God says in verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler of? They rejected him. Over and over they rejected him. He leads them out. He actually saves them. You know the story, right? He saves them. They go out to the promised land. And what do they do? Or not the promised land, but they're going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And what did they do in the wilderness? They rejected him. That's what he says here. Our fathers refused to obey him, verse 39. And they thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt. He goes up to Mount Sinai to get the law. While he's up with God getting the law, they're down, on the, down in the valley turning to idols, creating an idol of calf, a calf of gold, and worshiping God through this idolatry. They worshiped false gods, saying to Aaron, let us make for us a God that will go before us. And God says, verse 32, Stephen says, verse 42, and God turned away 
God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. He let them have their own way. And what Stephen is saying here by bringing up the prophets, even the prophets remind them of their false worship. What Peter, excuse me, what Stephen is saying here is he's giving, the, he's giving us the history of Judaism. And the history of Judaism is a history of unbelief, a history of sin, a history of misery, because it is a history of idolatry. That's really his sermon. He's preaching to the Jews saying, Judaism is just a, a history of idolatry. Why? Is it a history of idolatry? Because it's a history of unbelief. And it's a history that focused too much on earthly things. Judaism's, Judaism's theology is too earthly. So he says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. What he saw on the mountain was spiritual. The pattern was spiritual. He received a heavenly vision. And then he goes on to say in verse 48, about the house of God. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses. He told them to make a house for him and then said, but I don't dwell in houses made by hands, but in heaven. Verse 49, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house shall you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Israel's worship followed a heavenly pattern. Moses prescribed worship. And what Moses prescribed in the Old Testament was not valuable. What Moses was prescribing in the Old Testament, in building of the temple and the worship that followed, and the commands and the law, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, and all these things were not valuable in themselves. Circumcision doesn't work because it works. Sacrifices don't work just because they work. Being Jew doesn't mean you're Jew just because of the color of your skin, your race. The temple is not where God is because it's in Palestine. All of these things are earthly and fleshly. Your eyes are stuck in the wrong place is what he's telling the Jews. You're too earthly in your theology. You're too earthly in your understanding of the things of God. They have value because they're heavenly. They have value because they come from God. The value of religion is God. And therefore the value of religion is inherently spiritual. The problem with Judaism is that it remains too earthly. They believed religion resided in the color of skin. And they believed the ceremonies worked because they simply work. Because they're doing them. And therefore our place is the only place that matters. You see, they were reading the law. They were reading the Old Testament. They got all this from the Old Testament, by the way. But by reading the law without the gospel... And it is here with Stephen that the Reformed often get charged with spiritualizing the Old Testament. Have you ever heard that? You guys just spiritualize 
the Old Testament. Do we spiritualize the Old Testament? You bet we do. You see, we don't read it. We don't read the Old Testament like Jews. We read it like Christians. When we read the Old Testament, we read it like Christians. So when we hear in the New Testament that Abraham was promised this land, but he looked at it. That's what Hebrews says. He was promised, here's Palestine, it's yours. And he looked at it and said, nah, there's a better country than this. So when we read the Old Testament, we read that with Abraham. We long for a better, we see him longing for a better country. When Jesus said, hey, I knew Abraham and he knew me, when we read, when we read the New Testament, we look for that relationship. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, you search the Old Testament, you search Torah. You search Torah because you think there are principles that you will find, principles to live by, and you will gain heaven. He says, you do not gain God because when you read Moses, you fail to see me for Moses wrote about me. So guess what we do when we read Moses? We read about Jesus. Stephen is, Stephen is telling us here that we cannot follow Moses. If we follow Moses and only follow Moses and fail to see the spirituality of the church, fail to see Christ at the center, then that Old Testament religion is worthless because the Old Testament is, is spiritual. He says, verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stiff-necked comes from it's an agricultural term like horses and cattle and oxen their necks are stiff they won't follow the way you want them to go the word is saying the word is telling these old testament jews go this way and jews were like no i want to go this way no turn your head and follow the gospel through the old testament and they would not they were stiff-necked they wouldn't follow the lord just like the pharisees reading the old testament and giving us nothing but law stiff-necked we got to read the Old Testament and find Christ. When circumcised in heart, they really didn't like hearing that because they valued, they covered them. They thought all their flaws were covered by the fact that they were circumcised. But he says, no, you're uncircumcised in heart. Which following the prophets is another way of saying, you're not born again. You don't understand, you don't understand the things of God. You don't understand the spiritual things of God. You say they believe circumcision works because it works. No, it works because of gospel. It is the power of God and salvation that cuts people out of the land of the living to belong to God. It's the cross of Christ. Circumcision's power is spiritual. And they resisted the spirit, which means they resisted the true understanding of God's word. And as their fathers did, so do you. The ancient fathers, these fathers. You see, the Jews... The Jews have always been terrible interpreters of the Old Testament. They are today terrible interpreters of the Bible. Why? Because they fail to find Christ where he is presented. And here's our last point. Christianity is an Old Testament religion because the Old Testament centers on Christ. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That's all of them. Answer all of them. That's the history of Judaism. 
When the prophets preached Christ, they persecuted them. And they this, that's what he says. That's actually what he says. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Stephen is saying the prophets preached Christ and him crucified. They preached the gospel. So what did our Jewish fathers do? They didn't like the gospel. So they killed the prophets. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He's saying, and that's what you've done. Not only the prophets, but the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the history, and Torah. It's all about Jesus Christ. And when Christ becomes the center of religion, then there's no harm in saying, I don't care about geopolitical Israel anymore. When Christ becomes the center of religion and not Israel, there's an Israelitry that kind of remains in a lot of Christians in America, Christian religion. There's a lot of American evangelicals. They look more to Israel than Christ. But when Christ becomes the center of your religion, you don't care about rebuilt temples. Finding, what is it, a white cow or whatever. Is it a white cow? I can't remember. You don't care about bringing back sacrifices. You don't need the ceremonies of the law. You don't need any of it. Because you got the real. And those shadows and those types can all pass away because the reality is Jesus Christ. He's the true Israelite. He's the true man of God. He is the temple. And by faith, we are being, as stones, put into that temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. He is the only and the last sacrifice for the forgiveness. He's the only forgiveness of sins is in his final. He's the spotless lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. There, the writer of Hebrews brings election back into the picture, even of sacrifice before the foundation of the earth. Christ's sacrifice, the only lasting True sacrifice, the only temple, the only king, the high priest, mediator of a better covenant. That is a covenant better than Moses, but not a covenant better than Abraham. Because it is the Abrahamic covenant. Let that sink in. The new covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. It's only new in the fact that it's better than the old covenant. And what's the oldest covenant in the Bible? You gotta go back to the garden. Works, do this. It's a principle there of works. Do this and you will live. But the Abrahamic covenant is, I have called you, you are mine. You receive it by faith. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the better Adam. The true Israel one better than Moses, the only sacrifice, the righteous one. And he is called the righteous one because you must center your life on Christ. And how do you center your life on Christ? Is it by trying harder? Doing more? That's only going to take you down the wrong path, away from the Old Testament. Simply let it all go. That's what Stephen's telling these Jews. Let your race go. 
Let your earthly visions and hopes and glory go. Put away your good works. If any of you have failed this week, then I would say even put away your sin. Maybe you had a week that was hard and you failed. Put that away. Put away your doubts. Cast off your fears for a moment. And center your life, your thoughts on Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, let it go. And let Christ be the author and finisher of your faith. Let his righteousness be your righteousness. Because on the cross, he said, it is finished. All the striving, all the work, it's finished. And he is our light and our life. He is the yes and amen of scripture. And he is our only comfort in life and in death. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.